The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. But remain standing and take your Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this wonderful account of the gospel. And we will pick up today in chapter 26. If you have missed any of the prior messages, uh, you can go to our website, myrealchurch.org. You can find us at, uh, on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Google Play and SoundCloud. And the easiest way to find any of those links is to go to your Church Center app. If you have it, if not, I'd love to help you after service. Uh, download that on your phone. But there's a sermons tab on there. You can find all the links to the, to the sermons. But today, Matthew chapter 10 And we'll begin in verse 26 and read down to verse 33. So Jesus has just told his disciples, the 12 apostles, that they're going to experience intense persecution as they go out on mission. And so here's where we pick up. Jesus says to his disciples, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge them before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's Word. So in its entirety, Matthew chapter 10 is about Jesus' commissioning of the 12 disciples. He's sending them out on their first missionary endeavor, and he's preparing them for what will come over the next several years of their lives. And so much of chapter 10, consequently, is unique to the apostles. But what we're focusing on uh, throughout the study of this chapter uh, are the... Is the universal or are the universal principles, universal principles, excuse me, that apply to all believers throughout Christian history? Because the apostles, you know, Matthew calls the 12, he calls them apostles in chapter 10, but before he calls them apostles, what does he call them? He calls them disciples. And friends, every single one of us, if we are Christians, we are disciples. Every true Christian is a disciple. This is very important because throughout my ministry, I've heard many Christians and unfortunately I've heard many pastors espouse some type of theology that goes something like this. Well, you know, being a Christian essentially just means that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and and you want him to be your savior and then you're a Christian. But then in later years, maybe you actually want to follow him, and then you'll become a disciple. So it's like, kind of like discipleship is Christianity 2.0. So it's like, you know what, come to Jesus in faith, and you'll go to heaven, 
and then one day actually decide to follow him. It's like, that is not in the Bible. That is not the gospel. That's not the plan of salvation. To come to Jesus Christ as, you know, as a Christian, to become a Christian, is to follow him as not just Savior, but as Lord and Savior. It is to be a disciple. It's to be a disciple. When you, this is what saving faith looks like. Saving faith, yes, it, it believes in the facts of the gospel and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But beyond that, it says, not only do I believe in the facts of the gospel, but I'm going to live as if Jesus were Lord of my life because he is Lord of my life. That is what saving faith looks like. And I want to just stress again that we don't believe in this church that we're saved by good works. So good works are, are, are not the means of salvation, but we often say that good works uh, serve as the evidence of salvation. So someone who does not experience life change, who does not seek to follow God, I don't care if that person came to the altar and prayed a heartfelt prayer, if that person does not have the evidence to back up the claim that they are a Christian, that I would kind of doubt the validity of their faith and relationship with Jesus. Does that make sense? So here's bottom line. If you consider yourself to be a Christian, a real follower of Jesus, you are a disciple. You're a disciple. Uh, just like the 12 apostles. They, they were apostles. Uh, that was an office, but they were first and foremost disciples, just like you, just like me. And so if you were called to be a disciple, I think before making that decision... Like, yes, Lord, I want to be your disciple. You need to know the implications of what discipleship entails. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but I just want to give you a few points here, and we're going to move through this part very quickly. Number one, discipleship means living by the principles of the kingdom. Jesus says in Luke 6.46, he's puzzled. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I imagine he probably asked a lot of people that still today, wouldn't you say? You've met a lot of people who claim to be Christians, but they live no differently than the world. So discipleship means living by the principles of God's kingdom, or you could say by his word. Secondly, discipleship means proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Let me just share with you 1 Peter 2.9 he says to Christians in general, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. Friends, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not just the job of the preacher. It's not just the job of the missionary. It's the job of every single believer. So God has called each of us as disciples to proclaim the gospel, to invite people into the glorious kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. A beautiful picture. Thirdly, discipleship means, and this is our focus uh, within this uh, Matthew chapter 10, discipleship means a willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel. To endure persecution. I've said over the last couple weeks that most of us will not experience the same level of persecution that others experience around the world. 
You know, people are literally dying because of their faith all over the world on a regular basis. There are people today who are uh, imprisoned because of their gospel proclamation, because of their faith. And so most of us in our lifetime will likely, you know, here in the America, not experience this kind of persecution. But we will experience some level of persecution. Matter of fact, Paul uh, reminds us of that truth in, in his letter to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, let me read you one more text. This is Romans 8.16 and 17. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And we say amen to that, right? And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we say amen to that. But listen to the rest of the verse. Provided, so we're heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. So suffering for the sake of Christ, it is a necessary part of discipleship. So every true disciple, every Christian is a disciple, and every disciple will experience some level of persecution. You're going to be ridiculed for your faith. You might not get a job because of your faith. You might lose a job because of your faith. You might be deemed a bigot, or as they like to say today, a hater, uh, because why you got to hate, right? That's, if you're a Christian, that's what you're going to be accused of. So last week we looked at the inevitability of persecution. Every one of us, if we're living godly lives, we will experience persecution. Today, the focus is, and, and next week also, it'll be the, the focus on how do we respond to persecution. So if you're going to have to endure it, it's like, how in the world do you respond to that? And so today's text, we see that God's God calls us to respond to persecution fearlessly. Fearlessly. That's the point today. We are to endure persecution fearlessly. Look at Matthew 26, just the first part. Jesus says, he's talking about, to the disciples about the people who would be after their own lives. And he says, have no fear of them. Like, that's easier said than done. Do you know, let me ask you, what command do you think is repeated most frequently in the Bible? You might say, well, the command to pray, the command to share the gospel, the command to read your Bible, the command to walk in wisdom. But you know the command that's repeated most frequently according to a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright? Do not fear. And it's like, why, why, you know, repeat that command more than prayer and, you know, Bible study and sharing the gospel? Why, why warn against fear so often? Why command over and over, do not fear? Well, I think it's simple because fear can be paralyzing. So if you walk in fear, you won't obey any of the other commands because fear paralyzes us. Just give you a couple examples here. You likely know somebody 
in your life that who maybe wanted wants a career change. Like they're stuck in a job, a career they don't like. And so maybe that new career that they're dreaming about, uh, it, it necessitates them going back to school and to get a different degree. But they're like, you know what, at my age, and I, you know, I don't know if I could pass tests. I don't know if I could handle the workload. And so because of fear, they stay in a job and a career they just don't like. I have a, a, a dad who is very, very smart. And he had three years of college here at EKU before meeting my mom. And uh, when he met my mom, he's like, I'm not going to finish. I'm just marrying this lady before she uh, gets smart and, you know, says, you know, no, this is what I did too. I, I turned down a scholarship. You know, I went to college later. But when I was uh, 18, yeah, I had gone to, to Georgetown College, had a vocal scholarship, I had all my, and then I meet my wife, Nikki, and I was like, I'm marrying her right now because she's going to wisen up at some point and just kind of, so I'm going to hook her while I, while I can. But my dad, after, after quitting college, he worked for a, a factory in Lexington. Uh, he worked for train for 35 years. He was a foreman. Dad's very intelligent, very creative. And, but that job, it was secure. It was predictable. But can I tell you that he hated every single day of his job. His mother said, listen, I'll pay for you to go back and finish your degree. But every day he would just talk about how much he hated his job, but he would faithfully go day after day. Why? Hopefully he's not listening to this right now, but, um, but quite frankly, fear. He may not call it that. He might not package it as that. But his job, again, it was predictable. It took no risk. He, he knew it was going to be there tomorrow. Day after day, he went to the same job because he knew he'd get the same amount of, uh, of money. And he just, you know, if he stayed there, there's no risk. And so he was paralyzed by that fear and spent 35 years doing a job that he had no desire to do. Fear paralyzes us. Think of the major media outlets. I, I don't often get political here, and I'm going to try not to, but... Can, can we just all agree that every, every, hear me, every media outlet, major media source, there's always an agenda. And they, are, they almost always have some political agenda. And the organizations are very smart, aren't they? Because they realize that if they can get the general public to constantly tune in to their often distorted and fear-infused stories... That once they have you paralyzed by fear, then they can give you whatever solution they propose. They can come to the rescue, and you're like putty in their hands. They're notorious for fear-mongering, aren't they? Just think of COVID. Now, I'm not suggesting that COVID wasn't serious on any level. I had friends who were really sick and in the hospital, and I've known people, a couple of people to die through this. But can we just all agree that if... if those people who listen to the news every single day, that COVID just crushed them. Do you remember then when we didn't even know if it was okay to come to church because we were so, Siri just asked me if I could try again. Um, maybe I wasn't clear. <laughs> that was very odd. But we were so... <laughs> <laughs> Apple now helps you preach, I guess. Man, 
But we were so just saturated with fear that, I mean, goodness gracious. You get the point. Friends, fear can be paralyzing. It it can cause us to think and to behave irrationally. Just think of election time. Anytime there's election. So every news outlet has a favorite candidate. True? You know that. So here's what they do. Their goal is to get you to love their candidate. And just in case you don't love their candidate, here's what they do. They focus most on the candidate they don't like. And they embellish every little bad detail about that person. And here's, when you listen to it enough, here's the message they're sending out with just in small increments day by day. If you vote for person X, then this country will be destroyed. You'll be broke, you know, uh, it won't be a country you want to live in anymore. And then you buy into that. You're like, oh my goodness, I could never vote for this person. And they're like, but let us give you this candidate. And then you've got the other media outlet doing the opposite, saying if you vote for, you know, uh, person Y, then the country is going to collapse. The economy is going to collapse, so on and so forth. You, You get it, right? Well, you know, it's the same when it comes to fear in our spiritual lives. I think this is why the Bible repeats the command over and over, do not fear, because we can have the best intentions to serve the Lord. We can have the best intentions to proclaim the gospel, to endure suffering for his sake. But listen, if we walk in fear of being persecuted, we won't do anything. For overcoming fear, think of it. We will never share the gospel because of the fear of rejection. We won't live any differently than the people of the world. We will not live as disciples. We will not live by kingdom values. Why? Because we don't want to be seen as misfits. Fear. What will they think of me? We won't give generously. This is why a lot of Christians today, the average Christian gives away, I think it's 2 or 3% of his or her income. Why? Fear. Well, if I give, I might not have something. And what if the Lord doesn't come through for me? It's fear. And we certainly will not endure extreme persecution if we're scared of emotional pain, physical pain, and death. So Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them out on this journey, and he says by implication to every believer throughout history, you're going to be persecuted. I'm sending you out, remember, I think it was verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. And then he says, do not fear them. You won't accomplish anything if you fear men. So that's the essence of today's message. Don't fear persecution. And again, think about what Jesus has told his disciples in the previous verses. If you were here last week, I mean, this is not like they're going to laugh at you. He said, your very people are going to bring you before the synagogue. And they're going to flog you. They're going to beat your breast. They're going to whip you on the back. 
It's going to be painful, but it's also going to be humiliating because you're going to be deemed a heretic amongst the Jews, and you're going to be beaten in front of your peers. And then it's not going to stop there. He says you're going to be um, dragged before kings and governors within the Roman world. That's not scary at all. It's like so, but then he goes on and is like, don't fear. People will crush you, but don't fear. It's like, how do you do that? Well, Jesus gives us three, three um, reasons that you and I as Christians don't have to fear persecution. Number one, we don't fear persecution because we will all eventually be vindicated. We'll all eventually be vindicated. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus says, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. It's like, what does that mean? This verse has puzzled Christians for many, many years. Some people have taught that this verse means, you want to hear this, because some of you think that's what this, thinks that's what this verse means. Some have taught that the verse means that everything we've ever thought about and done in secret is going to be eventually revealed to the world. Gulp. I don't think that's the correct interpretation. Dear Lord, I hope not. The context of the verse, think of it. Jesus is encouraging his disciples not to fear. Now think about this. If Jesus is saying that every secret to to his disciples, hey, listen, every secret you've had, every secret action you've done, it's going to be revealed to the world, so don't fear. Do you think that would move them towards fear or away from fear? They will be shaking in their boots like, seriously, Lord. That's not what Jesus meant, I'm, I'm pretty sure. The idea is petrifying. Here's what he meant. The disciples went about preaching the gospel, and as they did, Many considered them to be fools. They considered them to be heretics. And they were hated, as many of us are today, because of the gospel message. But here's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry about what they say, because in the end, the things that are covered, the things that are hidden, they're going to be revealed. You will, on the last day at least, you'll be vindicated. Justice will prevail, and your persecutors will be, that they'll give an account for what they've said and what they've done. The apostles will be vindicated. Now, that's true for us as well. When the message is rejected, when, when people look at us and say, you're foolish. You know, when the naturalists in the secular world look at us and say, you're foolish for, you know, believing um, such a thing. Regarding the creation of the world and the salvation of man, it's like you're foolish. It's like, well, one day you shall see. You and I will be proven right. And I think we all like that thought because think of this. If you're married, you've likely said something to your spouse throughout, you know, at some time over the course of your marriage. And, and your spouse has said, no, that's wrong. And then eventually it comes out that you were right. That's a good feeling right there. Now, husbands, let me help you. Don't rub it in your wife's face. Don't gloat. You're welcome. 
Yeah. So as Christians in the 21st century, you know what? Again, we're going to be deemed biggest, bigots, and, and, and we're going to be seen as foolish because we dare believe in a transcendent God who created all things. We'll be seen as misfits we, because we don't engage in what the world engages in. But Jesus says, don't worry about it. In the end, they're going to see that you were living by the truth and that you believed the truth. You will be vindicated. So that ought to help us not to fear. Second reason we don't fear is because we fear God. We don't fear man because we fear God. Look at verse 28, another puzzling verse. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now I could go turn on the fire and brimstone right now, but... I, <laughs> But I won't. So there are some, there's some debate as to what this verse means. Some theologians believe that when Jesus says the one who can destroy the soul and body in hell, they believe that Jesus is speaking of Satan. Matter of fact, N.T. Wright thinks uh, that's what Jesus, who Jesus is talking about. I don't think that's the correct ter- interpretation. I believe the verse is speaking about fearing the Lord mainly because there are a myriad of scriptures that point to the idea that it is good to fear the Lord. It's a good thing to fear the Lord. Let me just, I'm going to read you a few texts real quick. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Exodus 20.20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Now listen to what he says, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 1 Peter 1.17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Peter says, listen, you're in a strange land. You're around people who live any way they want to live. They're, they're walking in sin, but you better not do that. You better remember who your father is, who judge, judges impartially, and let the fear of God cause you and propel you to walk in a way that's pleasing to him. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness com- to completion in the fear of God. Fearing the Lord, we, we always talk about this in church, and we say, well, it's just the idea. We're not really to be, like, scared of him. It's just the idea of awe and reverence. And why certainly, you know, we are to be in awe of God, and we are to revere him as, as God. Um, I believe that the Scripture takes the fear of the Lord beyond that. I believe that Jesus is telling his disciples and us to fear God because his wrath is a force to be reckoned with. And if we deny Christ, this is what Jesus says in the following verses. If you and I deny Christ because we fear man, then we will one day face the wrath of God. Which, by the way, would make persecution on this earth, the worst of persecution on this earth, seem like a walk in the park. On the positive side, if we fear God and boldly proclaim Christ, even in the face of persecution... We'll never experience the wrath of God. That's good news. So let's take the positive spin and say, yay for that. 
William Gurnell gave said this once. He said, quote, when man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the wrath of God, end quote. Oswell Chambers wrote, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you will fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. Did you get that? If you fear God, you'll fear nothing else. If you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. John MacArthur tells the story of Hugh Latimer, who was preaching one day in the presence of King Henry VIII. And he reported on himself that he said, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say. But then he said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. For such unflinching faithfulness, Latimer was eventually burned at the stake, but he feared God more than he feared men. And faithful disciples value their souls. So we don't fear man, number one, because we will be vindicated. And number two, because we fear God, we do not have to fear man. And then the third reason we do not fear is because God will never forsake us. God will never forsake us. Look at verses 29 through 33. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than two sparrows, than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I'll acknowledge before my Father. But whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father who is in heaven. The idea here is simple. It's that the all-powerful God, that the one whom Jesus just said has the power to destroy both body and soul, he's actually for you if you are in Christ. He cares for you. And so Jesus assures the 12 and all real followers of Jesus throughout church history that they and we belong to the Lord. Hallelujah. God has a special love and affection for those who belong to him. Just like you have a special love and affection for your children. Sparrows, uh, in, in the ancient world, they were very common. They were of very little value. And yet Jesus says that not one sparrow falls to the ground without the knowledge of your Father who is in heaven. The idea is simple, that if God cares for the sparrow, how much more will he care for human beings created in his image, particularly the ones that belong to him? When you truly care for someone, think about this. You go to extreme lengths to find out any detail you can about that person. Think about it. Like hopefully with your spouse, if you're married, you know so much about your spouse. You ask questions. You want to know your spouse's hopes and dreams and fears and all of these things. And that's how much God loves you so much that, friends, he knows the number of hairs on your head. I don't think this is um, exaggeration. I don't think it's hyperbole. I think he really knows the number of hairs on your head today. For some of you, that's an easy number. 
Just saying. Had to wake you up there. That idea, that fact is supposed to give us great comfort. Great comfort. In Acts chapter 6, there's a man by the name of Stephen who did the work of the kingdom. He was charged with blasphemy by the authorities. He was stoned because of his proclamation of the gospel. And here's what I want you to see, that when we face the most intense persecution, Jesus' words about God's love for us and his, the, the way that he is with us, they're, they're meant to encourage us and help us to endure persecution. And this is what Stephen the martyr felt. I, I want to read for you just a short passage, and I'm, I'm getting ready to wrap up, but Acts 7, 54 through 60. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged, these authorities. They ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, listen, you're not alone when you're persecuted. You have the Holy Spirit. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. He's about to die, but full of the Holy Spirit, he looked into heaven. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Listen to his words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As he's being stoned and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. That's the nice way of saying he passed away. He sensed the peace in his life to where he could even say, Lord, forgive those who are stoning me. They have no idea what they're doing. Does that sound like anybody you know? Is that not the testimony that we have of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross? Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And that's the set, that peace. It's the testimony that we've heard over and over. That, it, that, that peace has been evident in the lives of martyrs throughout the ages. Friends, God will never abandon us. He's with us in the worst of times, in, in the most extreme persecution. I, I told you the story just last week of John Rogers. Remember, remember John Rogers? He was this uh, former Catholic priest, and he converted to Protestantism. He was, uh, he, he was discipled, actually, by William Tyndale. And, and Rogers ended up helping us get the first... Bible translated in English. It's a beautiful thing. So when Rogers was converted, eventually when um, Queen Mary I came into the power, you, uh, Queen uh, Mary I, remember we, we call her Bloody Mary? When she came into power, she hated Protestants. She was a devout Catholic and she wanted to crush the, the Reformation. She, she had, I think it was over like close to 300 men and women 
burned at the stake because of their faith. And John Rogers was the first. So he was led, you remember the story from last week, he was led um, in front of a crowd of people. In that crowd, watching him being led to the stake to be burned alive was his wife and his 11 children. His wife was holding a baby, an infant child that was his, and that was the first time he ever saw that child because he'd been in prison for so long. And as he was burned at the stake, testimonies say that as if the fire didn't even hurt him, he lifted his arms out as in victory. Crowds begin to cheer him on as he went to his Father who is in heaven. Friends, God will not abandon you. You have no reason to fear persecution. He's with you in the battle. And as I was preparing this message, I began to meditate on the fact that, you know what, you and I would not be here this morning worshiping God, knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, on our way to eternal life with the Lord himself, had it not been for these 12 men to whom Jesus is talking in our text. They gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. And not just the apostles, but throughout history, hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of men, women, and yes, even boys and girls have been slain for the sake of the gospel so that you and I could be right here today. I'm grateful for the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, I'm grateful for all the reformers of the 16th century who were willing to give up everything for the sake of the true gospel. The true, true gospel being that we are not saved by works, but we are saved. This was the, the, the cry of the Reformation. We're saved by grace alone, by, by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's the cry of the Reformation. And so these faithful believers gave their lives to stand up against the corruption of the Catholic Church and the bad doctrine of the Catholic Church. They gave their lives to deliver to us the true gospel. And Martin Luther, who we might call the, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he was arrested, tried, hunted, excommunicated, hidden and betrayed because of his bold proclamation of the gospel. He faced debilitating illnesses throughout his adult life, and I, I have to think that's connected to the stress that was on his body because someone was always after his life. And in the final moments of his life, he said this, into your hands I commit my spirit. You've saved me, Father, you faithful God. He'll give you peace in persecution. Luther wrote a phenomenal hymn. I played it at 1040 today, right before service, if you came in. I played a rendition of that song. It's called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it became the rally song for the Reformers, and it still serves all across the world. It's an encouragement today. I just want to end by reading these verses, these words of this song. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark or, or this fortified wall, never failing. 
our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, that is the devil, seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Verse 2, did we in our strength confide? Luther is writing this amongst persecution. Did we in our strength confide? Our striving, our, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his triumph to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, listen, your own families will turn against you. You may lose everything, every material possession. And, and Luther writes, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. These are not just words like, it's not fluff. Friends, they lived these words out. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. All of us who proclaim the gospel and insist on living godly lives will experience persecution. Do not fear. In the end, we'll be vindicated. We fear God, so we need not fear man. And we can find peace and strength in the love of God. May we boldly proclaim today and always, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Stand with me. Father, thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the honor of being able to be part of the, the worldwide mission to proclaim the gospel, to expand the kingdom. Thank you that eternally you are with us. You will not abandon us. We need not fear rejection. We need, need not fear persecution or imprisonment or even death. For you are life and you have promised us life eternally if we endure to the end. Thank you for the Spirit who empowers us today. Forgive us, Lord, for not being more bold in our faith, but may it, this be a new day. May we live loudly and boldly for the glory of Christ and the glory of your name. By the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing this familiar hymn, I've decided to follow Jesus. I pray you sing it from your hearts. And... Uh, these altars are open if you need prayer for anything. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at
Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.